I think psychotherapy now has become a, in, in many institutions has become a bit of a bubble where there are all the people are agreeing with each other a lot and it's very much an echo chamber and they're just firstly just not used to somebody disagreeing. I think there is a very real phenomena of people that go into therapy, train as therapists who are themselves quite quite damaged and they've had things happen to them and unfortunately I think a lot of people try to get themselves into positions of power within certain institutions as a way essentially to cover over the fact that they are still quite vulnerable and they've still got lots of uncertainties and still stuff to work on in themselves. I think often in psychotherapy as well we see a lot of intellectualization as a kind of a defense mechanism so we really need to be reflective as psychotherapists and as clinicians and be aware that we are not separate from people it doesn't matter how many qualifications you have or however high up you are in whatever institution you're still human you must be some kind of therapist i am some kind of therapist and i'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. 
I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Amy Gallagher. She is a British psychiatric nurse currently suing the National Health Service for racial harassment, religious discrimination, and victimization. I'm excited to hear Amy's story, and I want to say to listeners who are familiar with this podcast that you might uh, hear some elements that harken back to previous conversations with Leslie Elliott and James Essis. Uh, Amy is another brilliant, caring person who was on the path of trying to become a therapist when ideology got in the way of good therapy. I feel fortunate that this didn't happen to me because I went to grad school between 2010 and 2013, but I feel like if I'd gone to grad school any later, I would be in a very similar boat to uh, the one Amy Gallagher is in, as well as uh, what Leslie and James have been through. I know many of our listeners are also in that boat. They are therapists in training, therapists in grad school, or people who are thinking about going to grad school for to become a therapist, but then develop some concerns about the direction of our field. So I really hope that this conversation will be pertinent to those listeners. And I'm so glad that you could join me today, Amy. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So you've shared your story in a few places. Will you let listeners know where they can go if they want to hear the whole story in depth? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter um, at, at Stand Up to Woke, and you can find me on, I've got a GoFundMe for my legal case. And there's some lots of links on my GoFundMe. Um, so I'm GoFundMe forward slash Stand Up to Woke. If you just Google my name, Amy Gallagher, on uh, YouTube, you should find some of my interviews. Um, I did an interview uh, with an organisation called New Culture Forum, so you could probably find me on there. Um, but if you just if you just uh, Google Amy Gallagher Tavistock or Amy Gallagher um, Critical Race Theory, you should be able to find me. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do recommend those interviews because you really lay out the whole story. I'm hoping today we can do sort of a brief overview for anybody who's not familiar with your story mm-hmm. of what you were trying to do and how you ended up suing the NHS instead. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I, a um, long time ago, I went into mental health nursing, um, always with the aim of becoming a psychotherapist. I wanted to get experience first with working with a range of patients. Um, but I worked really hard as a nurse to, to save lots of money up to train to be a psychotherapist. So I did my first years of training at the Tavistock, um, which some people may have heard of, um, primarily because it's become quite infamous now for its gender identity service, which is being shut down. Um, I mean, you can look, you can Google that, I guess, but there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding um, the use of puberty blockers with teenagers and so on. Um, so I did my first two years there. My first two years went pretty okay. I, I graduated and I decided to do the final two years, which were to qualify me as a psychotherapist. So I was kind of close to my goal, um, which I've been working towards for a long time. 
And basically, in a nutshell, um, from the get-go, they pushed very radical ideas around race onto me, um, what most people would know as critical race theory, which is essentially that oh, white people are oppressors and everyone else, all the other races are oppressed. And they were talking about, they were using phrases like white privilege, white fragility, white ignorance. They were making very generalised statements about certain races. So they were saying um, white people don't understand the world, white people are logical, um, black people are emotional, uh, just really crazy stuff. And it was presented not as one particular viewpoint or just there there is this theory that says this it was more this is this is what we think and I challenged it and I made a complaint and all the way through along the complaints procedure they essentially doubled down further and further they said yes this is what we think here um they they didn't take my complaint well they looked into it and then they responded by saying actually yes we encourage all the students to interrogate whiteness and we see whiteness as a form of power and privilege, and um, essentially, I wasn't anti-racist enough because I wasn't because I disagreed. And all I said essentially was that you need to be aware there's different viewpoints. Um, and they continued to push it onto me. They also uh, said some statements about Christianity. I'm I'm Christian, and they said that Christianity is a racist religion, and I disagreed with that. And it went on and on. They raised a student conduct policy against me. They said that I'd spoken inappropriately about race, although they couldn't quote anything that I'd said other than to say that I just disagreed and they didn't like the tone of my voice and the way that I disagreed. Um, and they kept threatening me and essentially they then tried to, one of the lecturers contacted the Nursing Midwifery Council, which is the regulatory body of my nursing, which is separate from my training, and essentially wrote to them and said that they didn't think I should be allowed to work as a nurse, or I, I showed that I'm incapable of working with like diverse patients. Um, and then, uh, then I got, then I served, I realised I had to sue them because they were essentially trying to force me off of this course and they were bullying me and trying to ruin my career. And then when I did that, it continued. Which is, I thought that they would back off when I, you know, initiated legal proceedings against them. But actually, it continued. One of the um, lecturers, one of the seminar teachers, she wrote a speech which she gave in front of some other students um, when I was there. We was meeting over Zoom at the time, essentially saying she felt that it wouldn't be safe to be in a room with me. We were going to meet in person. And she said, for the safety of the learning environment, um, it'd be easier to manage my oppressive speech over Zoom. Um, and then I was getting harassing messages from her. And then, oh my goodness, what else happened? I was seeing a patient. I'd seen one of my patients there and I'd had a really good experience seeing my patient. And I was due to see another patient as part of my clinical training and they stopped me they said that I was unsafe to see patients and the reason they gave for that was that at one occasion I knocked on a door because there was a noise going on in another room and I asked if the noise could be lowered because it was interrupting my session with my patient and they said I'd traumatized the people in the room by doing that and they told me I wasn't allowed to go into the reception area of the clinic because people would be re-traumatized by the sight of me and they stopped me from seeing my patient. They said they were going to do an investigation into me to see whether I was safe 
to be with patients. Um, that was a year ago, um, and that investigation hasn't happened yet. I've made several complaints, and they've looked into those complaints, and they're also currently investigating some of the bullying that's been happening to me, and I haven't got an outcome for that yet. And I'm still waiting to hear whether I can continue or what's going to happen. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, Amy, you sound like a real monster. <laughs> yeah. Going around traumatizing people. Traumatizing. Telling them to be quiet because you're in session. Yeah. yeah you're really unsafe to be around. And I, I'm really glad that you're, um, I don't know, what, 6,000 miles away. I don't know how far you are, but I got to stay yeah. away from you. You're dangerous. Now, someone yeah. said that about me on the internet today. They said I'm a, I'm a, a monster that's a threat to America. So I guess you're like a monster that's a threat to the UK, right? The UK, we're both monsters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sad that this is happening. As we've said, it's obviously this is happening more and more to more therapists. Um, and what's happening is, and it's really, it's really twisted that a lot of the language of mental health and of psychotherapy is being weaponized and used to bully people so words like trauma unsafe yeah. safety these are words that we might talk about in certain contexts where you you would talk about the safety of, of a patient or having creating a safe space or a safe environment or um, certain things potentially causing trauma um, but these words are now being used to bully people and to shut people down and um, it now means that the language has become corrupted, really, it, it's, which is, makes it very difficult to be an honest, open person working in the profession of psychotherapy because you've got to be on your guard all the time. Um, and what they're saying is, is the exact opposite of the truth. Like, when I hear that Christianity equals white supremacy or racism or whatever I'm thinking have have you ever met a black person like I so I grew up in a black neighborhood I was the I was raised atheist Unitarian Universalist and most of my black peers were Christian mm. like yeah. I I've there's so many I don't know about how it is in the UK but there yeah. are so many black Christians in the United States, like yeah. deeply religious people. And and I'm thinking like, so how, how is it that these people who are perpetuating these ideas um, are not even second guessing this idea no, no. that, I, I mean, it's like, talk about being unsafe to work with people or mm -hmm. like not culturally competent, right? Like, mm -hmm. so if a black Christian comes into your office, are you supposed to convince them to give up their religion because it's internalized racism actually? <laughs> like, yeah, they've internalized whiteness, I think would be the idea. It's, which means that you don't view a black person as having agency or yeah. being able to make up their own mind about what, what viewpoint they want or how they want to see the world or what, you know, it's so patronizing. It's really patronizing. It's like this, like, yeah. I, know, I know better than you, and whatever beliefs you have or however you formed your identity, if it doesn't align with my existing worldview, it's because you haven't gotten woke enough yet to realize yeah. how you're actually oppressed. Yeah, they, they take this view that they've got the, the truth, 
Um, and if you don't align with their truth, there's something wrong with you and you've got to sort of be, you've got to see the light in the way that they see it, which to me is very, very opposite to what I've been taught as a psychotherapist, that actually certainty is a bit of a red flag because um, no one's certain of anything. So when you feel like you know something 100%, that would be where I as a therapist would sort of maybe question that or sort of feel like that's quite rigid, you know, because part of being human is doubting, doubting things all the time. We're, we're, you know, we don't live in absolutes. Everything is, you know, we should be questioning ourselves all the time and and know where and realise when we get into very narrow ways of thinking. Um, And now psychotherapy has itself become very rigid and very narrow in its approach to a whole range of topics. Um, But yeah, I mean, this idea of Christianity, but I mean, it's actually on the decline in Europe and it's booming in Africa and various places around the world and it's a religion that's open to all people and it's just uh it it, it, it's it's very ignorant firstly but it's it becomes very racist very quickly and it's um yeah it's offensive to a lot of people and I I don't see how I'm still trying to get my head around how they cannot see that that they can't seem to see They've had all this training, so they must have as kind of psychological awareness. They've done degrees in psychology often or psychotherapy, so they have been taught to recognise these sort of patterns of thinking or behave behaviour, but they can't recognise it in themselves with regards to this this ideology. And I don't know what the solution is to that. <laughs> I don't know. It's very hard to talk with these people. Um yeah. I couldn't agree more with so much of what you're saying. And, and I think this point needs to be highlighted that that certainty <laughs> is is something for us to get curious about mm. as therapists, right? Where does that conviction come from? Yeah. And uh, I do think that there are times that, you know, one can feel a healthy sense of conviction mm. or a certainty that's a, a trust in their inner knowing. Mm-hmm. But I think more often than not, you know, as we see this sort of cluster B traits, which I talked about in my episode with Andrew Hart's counseling in a cluster B culture, as we see these sort of cluster B traits that we used to consider pathological and in need of treatment, sort of dominating the culture, Mm -hmm. we see some interesting ways people have defended themselves against intolerable emotions like shame, right? And doubt Mm -hmm. and fear. And certainty is one of those things. And it always makes me curious, what are they defending against? So, you know, I talk a lot about the gender issue and mm-hmm. and you see that the idea of a teenager being very certain about their so-called identity in, yeah. in this day and age is used to justify the narrative that that must mean that what they're saying is true. When actually, you know, the way I see it is that it's it's sort of a psychological defense whereby one is splitting and projecting. So they're splitting off their ambivalence, their doubt, or their fear, which is such a normal part of being human and a normal part of what you should feel about any life-altering decision you're considering making, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You should have some hesitation or cold feet about making a life commitment to anything. And so they're splitting that off, Mm -hmm. projecting it onto the supposed enemy, right? Whether that's 
you know, so-called bigots like mm-hmm. you and I, or mm-hmm. whether that's the parents that don't want their kid to medicalize or, you know, whatever the narrative might be, projecting onto the other yeah. their own doubts so that they're mm-hmm. doubling down in their certainty in this way that, that feels really defensive and fear-based. And there's a danger in that because someone who's doing that doesn't have access to their whole self. Yeah. And it's really kind of a barrier against doing some really valuable psychotherapeutic processes like parts work, for example. Mm. You know, with parts work, it's like there's a part of you that wants to make this decision. There's another part that's holding back. Can I support you in having that dialogue between those parts of yourself so that you can be more integrated and whole? And so that when you do make a decision, all the parts of you have had a chance to come to the table and talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting in terms of what they're doing defending against um I mean I think a lot of I think psychotherapy now has become a in in many institutions it's become a bit of a bubble where there are all people are agreeing with each other a lot and it's very much an echo chamber and they're just firstly just not used to somebody disagreeing like if, if you're if you're in an institution if you're in a social group where people never never disagree there's 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 not often conflict around certain political issues it's like we all have the same politics here if you have someone come in and says well actually i i think differently they they use this hyperbolic language like attack or trauma or you know become hysterical about it because they're just not used to it you know and they've sort of uh hidden away from it for for a long time um and i think it's often I think there is a very real phenomena of people that go into therapy, train as therapists who are themselves quite quite damaged and they've had things happen to them um, and they've got their own traumas. And I'm not saying that should prevent you from going into psychotherapy at all, but they have it's unresolved in them. And they've often been drawn to that profession because of their own stuff that's going on. And unfortunately... I think a lot of people try to get themselves into positions of power within certain institutions as a way essentially to cover over the fact that they are still quite vulnerable and they've still got lots of uncertainties and still stuff to work on in themselves. And rather than showing that and being open about that, they see themselves as kind of like they want to puff themselves up and say, I'm the expert. I've got all the answers. I've got all these qualifications. Um, and it ends up becoming a kind of a camouflage. And I think I think often in psychotherapy as well, we see a lot of intellectualization as a kind of a defense mechanism. So, um, you know, I've read more books than you. I understand the theories better than you. I understand, you know, I'm a true believer and therefore I am the better therapist. And actually that's itself a bit of a defense and it's a bit of a, way to kind of have control and power over people and so all the sorts of things that we see outside of psychotherapy kind of defense mechanisms that people use outside of it are often still within the institutions and psychotherapists defer to them themselves Um, so we really need to be uh, reflective as psychotherapists and as clinicians and be aware that we are not separate from people that it's not like because we understand uh, psychology or psychotherapy more that we're less likely to fall into these patterns of behavior we're just as much you know 
uh, we're just as fallible as everyone else and we can fall into things like splitting and projection as much as anybody else. And it doesn't matter how many qualifications you have or however high up you are in whatever institution, you're still human and, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're uh, less or more likely to fall into these unhelpful patterns of thinking. And I think that's what happens with some people in the profession uh, is that they um, end up thinking, well, that those things don't apply to me. You know, I've, I know all the literature, so I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. And then they become certain again. They become certain in themselves, certain in their viewpoint. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I'll raise this questions of what are the goals of therapy? Because increasingly you see this mentality that the goal of therapy, which is really an individual process, it's one-on-one or maybe groups, maybe you work with families, but generally it's a very individual, microcosmic way to focus in a career, right? Hmm. And and increasingly you see our, our profession being taken over by people who seem to think that the goal of psychotherapy should be this systemic change to Mm -hmm. the world we live in, which I don't disagree with in the broadest sense of things because Mm -hmm. I, I like societal change Mm -hmm. in theory and, and helping the culture to shift. I personally want to feel like my work does help us live in a more beautiful world. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when we get into the details of the types of changes people are trying to make, and how they're conceiving of their role as therapists, it that's where we're at odds. You know, I I think one of the goals of therapy, at least often in my work, is is to help the individual see more clearly themselves, their lives, their circumstances, and the world around them. 
So I, I often find myself saying that a healthy nervous system isn't one that's in a particular state all the time. It's not about mm -hmm. always being calm, for instance. A healthy nervous system is like a bike with well-oiled gears that can switch into and out of the gears it needs depending on the circumstances, right? So for example, our cortisol spikes in the morning for a reason, to get us going, to get us mm -hmm. ready to handle the stresses, hopefully some good stress, hopefully some worthwhile challenges, right? Um, and when you're going for a run, you want your heart to beat as fast as possible and you want mm -hmm. your blood flowing to your limbs. Um, if you're giving a speech or defending your client in a courtroom, you know, you, you want your stress response working for you. And then you want to be able to relax when it's time to relax, when it's time to bond with your family or prepare for bed in the evening. So it's just about having healthy circadian rhythms and a healthy ability to adapt. And I say this as someone who has a disorder of the nervous system. But so I've had this visceral experience of what does it feel like when my nervous system cannot, will not cooperate? My stress response isn't adapted, right? And mm -hmm. And I also really value um, my stress response being well adapted and being able to shift in and out of the mm -hmm. gears that I need it to. So, you know, I, I say this to my patients sometimes, or I just say it in conversation, that a healthy nervous system is one that is appropriately adaptable to your situations. And oftentimes when people come to therapy, it's because their nervous system adapted to one environment, mm -hmm. um, you know, like developing CPTSD or even just ADHD or anxiety type symptoms in response to an uh, let's say an environment that fostered hypervigilance, an environment that required hypervigilance, you know, mm -hmm. cultivated their nervous system in a certain way, and then they're trying to heal from that because they've made it into a different environment, or they're an adult now, they have more choice, and they want their nervous system to be able to adapt and feel safe when it's time to feel safe and trust their partner when they have every reason to trust their partner, things like that, mm -hmm. right? So I think the goals of therapy. It's not about convincing our patients that they're safe when they're not safe. I want mm -hmm. my patients to know when they're not safe, and I mm -hmm. want them to be able to take appropriate action. And I've seen the problems go both ways. You know, just as much as I've seen patients who have an exaggerated threat or startle response that's really not working for them in situations where they're overreacting, mm -hmm. and I want to help them learn how to soothe themselves and recognize that they're safe. I've also seen the opposite, where you know I've worked with people who are deeply entrenched in situations that are. Um, and I know this word gets thrown a lot around a lot, but toxic for them, mm -hmm. you know, people staying in bad relationships or bad work situations for way too long and their nervous system has sort of adapted to, um, soothe and anesthetize the pain and anxiety that they feel in that situation to keep them in it. And mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe the goal should be to actually help them feel enough of a sense of alarm or urgency that they can use that energy to catapult themselves out of that situation because they need to escape. Mm. Um, so it's it's not about seeing the world a certain way. It's really about seeing the world clearly, seeing yourself and others clearly, and being able to make informed decisions that are in touch with your body and your true needs mm -hmm. to help yourself have the best life that you can, ideally being in a safe environment most of the time, ideally taking on the challenges that are right for you and meaningful for you, and being able to shift gears appropriately. So I think a lot of these kind of woke therapists, they default heavily to one end of the spectrum of ways of thinking about it, which is that any time yeah. we try, you know, to use the 
the core principles of cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy anytime we try to focus on the agency of the individual, Mm -hmm. self-responsibility, emotion regulation, things like that, they see that as us gaslighting our patients. They see Mm -hmm. that as us trying to convince our patients that injustice isn't real or that they're not Mm -hmm. really under threat or things like that. And that that's a dangerous assumption to always make. It's also a dangerous it's dangerous not to have that be part of your way of seeing the world because there are truly times that someone's coming to us in a great deal of distress that we could get it wrong and we could see oh this is kind of a crazy person they're acting unhinged mm-hmm. but actually their reaction is telling us something about their environment. So I don't think it's really good to kind of default either way, but I think you have these woke therapists who think The world is really terrible in all of these ways. There's all this racism and homophobia and bigotry. And if you try to encourage your patients to take personal responsibility for what they can control, or if you try to encourage them to cultivate wellness or emotion regulation or maturity, then you are denying their lived experience. Mm. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, that, that actually might be true some of the time. But there are dangers in (laughs) defaulting too heavily to that side. We have to make room for the other possibility, which is that this is the particular filter that this person is looking through, or it's what their nervous system has learned from an early age, but it's no longer an accurate representation of their environment. We have to be curious with our patients, willing to try to see clearly with them. And that's where, like you said, the role of doubt comes in, because Mm -hmm. how can we be certain right off the bat? that our perceptions or our clients' perceptions are right or wrong. We have to make room to explore it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, I mean, you're right. You know, of course you could have patients, and I most of my patients have, you know, experienced kind of difficult, actual real difficulties in the world. You know, they've actually had abuses or injustices or prejudice kind of come their way or all sorts of things. And certainly you wouldn't be saying, no, that didn't happen to you. (laughs) But you would be saying, you know, obviously as a therapist, I can't change that, that it's happened or is happening. We we can't change the world. But what we can do is help the patient to think about the best possible response that they can do, the best way that they can manage it or to help them understand why they react so strongly to it or why they why they can manage one aspect of it, but they can't manage the other aspect or where their limitation is, you know, like maybe, um, you know, you, you can manage it if it, if you didn't have all these other things going on, you'd be able to control your emotions a bit better, but you've got so many other things going on, it's hard for you to, uh, you know, it's kind of the last, it's like the last straw and you've, you've ended up kind of, you know, experiencing something more strongly than maybe you would have, uh, you know, so it, it's really kind of working out what's going on for them and trying them to trying to help them with their thinking and trying to help them think critically about what's happening, and to be able to be a bit more objective and a bit more like not not invalidating their emotions, but okay, you're having this emotion, and what's the best way? You know, do you need to act on it straight away? Can you think about it? Can you, you know? You know, has, have you had this kind of situation before? So you're really, you're, you're not trying to, you're not, you're not really trying to make any statement about the world or society, really. You, you, you're just trying to understand the patient, their responses, what's meaningful to them, why it's meaningful to them, why a certain thing 
uh, resonates with them more than other things, why some things upset them more than other things, and what that's about, what, what it connects to in other aspects of their life. And through that, they gain a kind of an understanding of themselves and they can think, ah, oh, I know why this bothers me so much. I know why it bothers me because this happened to me and I'm this sort of personality. So I know this thing really bothers me and I can stop and I can see it happening and I don't have to react in the way that I did before. So you're not, you're not really, you shouldn't be getting into some kind of discussion about the state of the world too much. I mean, they may bring that to you. And you may help them, you may help think through that with them. Um, but in terms of kind of societal change, I mean, the patient is very likely almost always to be very different from you. I mean, no two people are exactly the same. And what their idea of societal change, they might, they might, they might not care about politics or the world or society. You may have patient that just does not care about, <laughs> who's completely zoned out from what's going on in the news and they don't need, to, you know, it's not interesting to them. Or you may have a patient who, whose values are completely different from yours, who may want to bring about a kind of societal change that you don't want. You know, you could be a woke therapist and you could have a patient who really does want to go into politics or, or make a change in the world and it's completely the opposite of what you want. They, they might be trying to, I don't know, um, they might want to vote Republican or they might want to vote... in you know, in the UK, they might want to go into some kind of conservative politics, or they might be an atheist, or they might be religious, or they might want to, they might care about animal rights, and you might not care too much about animal rights. It, it really doesn't, but the point is, you're not trying to, you're trying to help them get into a place where they can um, understand who they are, what they want, what sort of life they want for themselves, become the best person that they can be. It's a little bit like, I think about it like being a good parent, if you're a good parent, you allow your child to become what they are. You don't try to get them to be like you. You don't say, I think you should do this profession or you should think this or you should do that. You you let them un work out who they are, what they want, and they come back to you for guidance and you can give them guidance and you can steer them in a certain direction a little bit, but ultimately you're giving them a foundation from which they can grow and they might become a person that's totally different to you um but and you can help them with that and they'll take bits of you that they like and there'll be parts of you that they don't like and they might agree with you on some things and they might disagree with you on other things but the point is they are becoming the fullest expression of themselves and that's what you're trying to facilitate as a, as a therapist and often we have patients that come to us who are struggling with some kind of problem or some kind of narrative that they're following in their head that prevents them from fully actualizing in the world, from building, from getting the relationship that they want or the job that they want or whatever that it is they want to pursue. And you're just trying to essentially open up avenues of thinking. Um, you're trying to help them understand kind of what, where they've got to, why they've got to where they are now, how they got to that position, where they want to be. And that's all really. Um, and it may be, and it is likely to be very different from you. Uh, and what we're seeing is woke, woke therapists is essentially they want to try to get the patient to see the world how they see it, <laughs> which is, that's, you know, that's a very kind of narcissistic form of therapy or form of parenting where you want the child to be like you, you know, 
um, I'm interested in this and my child should be interested in this. But that's not what it is to love someone and that's not what it is to be a, a professional or ethical therapist. That's how I see it. I agree. And these therapists are very concerned with the idea of bias. And that's <laughs> another irony because they're making their biases very explicit. Yeah. You know, the bias that all white people are racist, that Christianity is race, racist. Um, you know, I, I've had my own biases revealed to me by doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was raised with pretty negative conditioning around what Christianity was or could be. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've always been, up until the last few years, always been very far left, very progressive and liberal in my politics. And... I thought of myself as having, you know, so-called cultural competency with everything except like white working class Christian conservative America. That was the group that I stayed away from that mm-hmm. I didn't think I had any obligation to become culturally competent in. Mm-hmm. And I had a humbling experience with that because I was placed in a job where even though I was pretty close to Portland, I was in a suburb that was like a working to middle class, more conservative Christian suburb. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember one of my first, I think it was my very first patient at that job. And she was not white, actually. Uh, I believe she was mixed race. But I remember um, one of the first questions that she asked me was, are you a believer? And I was... I was instantly floored. I was like, I have no idea how to respond to this. Here's someone not only telling me up front that her faith is very important to me, to her, but also letting me know that it was important to her to know if her therapist shared her religious view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I can't honestly remember how I navigated that. I think I ended up referring her to a Christian, you know, someone who specialized Mm -hmm. in Christian counseling, because obviously she was letting me know that her faith was very important to her. But I remember that happening and thinking, oh boy, I I need cultural competency with Mm -hmm. the one population that I was too arrogant to think I needed to learn anything about. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, I kind of had my ass handed to me. I, I remember making an offhand remark to a colleague that, was sort of disparaging Christianity. Um, And I don't even remember what it said. It was just something that revealed my bias Mm. because of the conditioning I had around what it meant to be Christian. Mm. And she was very polite at the time, but then like, and she was somebody who was very socially graceful. She found a way to kind of drop a hint in a later conversation that her faith was important to her. And I was like, oops, (laughs) like I just (laughs) offended someone, right? And since then I've, you know, I've been trying to, learn more from all the different types of people who find that Christianity resonates for them. Um, and and then when I go and say something that's remotely supportive or respectful of Christianity, inevitably I get two kinds of reactions. I get, you know, very religious people trying to kind of pull me over to their side. Mm-hmm. And I get all of the, um, and this is just what's happening on Twitter, right? Not what's happening in therapy, but um I get a lot of gender critical atheists saying that I shouldn't dare to go there because people are going to write me off. And it's like, well, 
I, I gave up trying to control what people think about me a long time ago. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this work. People are going to assume what they're going to assume. I've learned that I can't control people's ability to comprehend what I'm really saying. Um, but I want to kind of talk about this anti-Christian bias. Mm. Um, so you say that you're a Christian mm -hmm. and that you discovered a strong anti-Christian bias at the NHS, which, again, is very concerning because mm. they're the ones claiming to be competent at working with diverse populations but somehow a religion that means so many things to so many people doesn't count. Like there it's, it's such a mixed message of on the one hand, we want to support diversity. On the other hand, we will only work with people who align with our worldview hundred mm. percent. So can you tell me about what was this anti-Christian bias that you discovered? And were you out as Christian at the time? Or were you just sort of sitting back, taking it in, holding your beliefs to yourself? Yeah, so it started in one of the very early lectures where it it was about race um, and it was very politicised and there was this one kind of slide where they essentially described Christianity as a as white, you know, which it, it obviously isn't. Um, and the lecturer spoke quite negatively about it, as you know, it's, it, it was it was a bad thing to, to her, you know. Um, and I, and then it came up again, and I was curious that no other religions were being mentioned. It seemed like this was being singled out um, and being conflated with race as well. Um, and I just, I just expressed curiosity at the end. I said, you know, I'm noticing that you're singling out that one particular religion, and I'm, I'm curious about why that is. And she said, well, you know, in the context of the discussion about race, you know, Christianity is is responsible for racism because it's European. That's what she said, uh, um, which is just, I mean, first, it's just not true. I mean, it's, it's not a European religion. It's this Middle Eastern re religion. But I guess what concerned me was that this lecturer was now speaking about topics which she clearly wasn't qualified in. She's a psychotherapist. She's not a historian. She's not a theologian. You know, and yet she seems to know it all with regards to these topics. Um, and then they spent, they sent more reading literature around that essentially said that the Bible is responsible for racism because it uses the words light and dark and uses light to refer to goodness and dark to refer to, to sin or badness. Um, which again, I mean, that's, I should say that's true of most religions do that and it's true not just in religion I mean terms like light and dark are used in all sorts of ways in poetry and art and again it just felt like a singling out of Christianity and I have I've had discussions with people about why is it this ideology singling out this religion it somehow gets conflated with being a western religion and they're sort of anti-western which again it's I mean it is the main religion of most European countries but it's not it's not exclusively Western. I mean, it's it's one of the main religions of Africa and, and the Philippines and various places all around the world. So it's it's not it's not exclusively Western, although it is, of course, the main religion of, I guess, the UK and America and the, of the Anglosphere. Um, but it's I don't know if it's that they want to be disparaging of religion itself, but they feel that they it's not woke to criticise other religions, you know, that they, they wouldn't criticise Islam or Hinduism because of the certain groups that that might offend, whereas Christianity is fair game. I think that's 
part part of it um but it's I think it's also just when I think your point about sort of avoiding that group is very interesting because I think what happens is when you avoid a certain group um like you sort of think oh I don't know how to manage Christians or conservatives I just won't I just won't have them as patients the more you avoid a certain group as in your profession or just socially the more you're likely to develop a kind of prejudice about them because you're not testing out your prejudices. So you have an idea of what these people are like, but because you don't mix with them, you your sort of your prejudice gets stronger and stronger because you're never you don't see the alternative. Whereas if you mix with lots of Christians in the way that I do, you find that they're all really different. <laughs> they think different things, they have they have there's all different versions of Christianity. So if someone says to me they're a Christian, I sort of feel like, uh, in a sense, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I don't. I sort of think I don't really know what that means. It could mean all sorts of things because they could be very orthodox, they could be very liberal, they could believe in the resurrection, or they could think that it's just symbolic. Or there's all sorts of beliefs about where, which people, which comes over up this overarching structure of kind of Christianity. So really, when I when someone says to me they're a Christian, I'm kind of very open because I sort of think, oh, I did, that could mean lots of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're like me. And I've met Christians I really get on with. I mean, I've get, met Christians I really don't get along with. Um, so you realise that actually, you know, like with most groups, they're individuals. People are individuals. And you can't really make assumptions because they're conservative or they're Christian. But I think if you don't mix with that group, you end up believing... I guess the kind of propaganda that you may be on the receiving end of with regards to that group. So um, you might start, you, you end up sort of uh, developing an idea of what that means, what, what those sorts of people are like, and you never challenge it. You never, I guess, test it out in, in reality. You sort of never test test those prejudices out. So I think that's what happens a little bit. Um, and then they just end up sort of thinking, all Christians think this, all Christians are homophobic, all Christians are, um, I don't know, you know, against this, or all Christians are conservative, which they're not. Um, Christians vote in all sorts of different ways, and they have all different sorts of political beliefs or, or views. Um, but they end up kind of just developing a kind of uh, narrative of what that group is. So I think that's what happens. And that can happen to any group. Any group can do that to any group. Any race can do that to any other race. That they That's kind of how prejudice kind of um, is created, I think, when it, it just comes from ignorance, really. Um, and I think a lot of critical race theory as well is based on racial stereotypes. It, it's based on, you know what you think white people are, what you think white people do, how they behave, the same with kind of how you think black and Asian people think, what they, what you think they want, what you think they feel. Whereas, of course, if you sat down with 10 black people or 10 Asian people or 10 white people and asked them a series of questions, you'd get 10 different answers because they're individuals. And that's why I love psychotherapy because you've always, it always brings you back to the individual someone walks in the room who you're treating and they sit down and they tell you about their life and you can never predict what they're going to say it, it's really you, you sort of maybe have an idea oh I bet this person you know is going to be like this or they may think that and what they will say will be completely unique um 
so that's why I love it. And it's unfortunately it's being taken over by people who don't want to see people as individuals. They want to they want to lump them into groups and, and then designate a kind of good group and a bad group. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I appreciate what you're saying about how... Uh, being therapists, if, if, well, I think if we're doing it right, it, it really matures us psychologically Mm. and it, you know, it humbles us to our own biases and we learn so much from our patients. And I'm really grateful that I'm grateful for the jobs I had in the past for the exposure that they gave me and Mm. for how they opened me up to learning from people with different experiences. And I really came to see I saw what I actually truly had in common with people that I never would have met if they weren't my patients. Mm. And I saw how people from very different backgrounds and even people with very different beliefs than myself, actually, I felt like we had some core values in common, you know? Mm. And then, you know, I also saw that sometimes the things that I thought I had in common with people only go so deep, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like very grateful for how this work has helped me to develop as just a wiser, more understanding person. And, um, but I do think that at times in my career, I colluded with my patients in their biases, you know, that, um, given that many of my patients were very liberal and did hold some of these same biases that we're talking about biases that, for example, believing that all Christians are homophobic or all conservatives are racist, these kinds mm-hmm. of biases. You know, I've had many patients who I worked with as individuals that had some kind of conflict with their family because of how their family voted or worshipped. And looking back, I'm not confident that I always did the best I could to help them. I think that there are certain experiences I had, though, that that helped me become a little bit more circumspect about my own biases. 
Um, like I know reading the work of Jonathan Haidt was really helpful mm-hmm. for me, you yes, know, me his <laughs> approach to understanding morality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember going from having these experiences with my patients where I was sort of colluding with them, right? Mm-hmm. Where they would tell me their snap judgments about people whose worldview or political or religious beliefs they disagreed with. And I would just find myself nodding along like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I remember going from approaching things that way, which helped my patients like me more. And maybe maybe that created a foundation for us being able to do certain types of work together because they trusted me and felt like I was similar to me, similar to them. But maybe that could only go so far, you know? And I remember when I started thinking a little bit more critically about this and thinking, oh, I I need to do a better job of helping families bridge this divide. Mm. You know, I mean, it'd be, it'd be a whole different thing if I had a family coming to me, but oftentimes this was happening in the context of an individual venting about their family. Mm. And I don't know that I always did the best job of helping them try to see things from their family members' perspectives, which is not the first stage. I mean, the first stage is rapport. The first stage is helping your client feel understood and cared for, right? But then there comes a point ideally where someone's ready to be a little challenged that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the way they're seeing the situation, especially if it's causing them suffering, maybe it's not the most enlightened view. And maybe there's a way that they could see from a different angle that would actually help them feel less paranoid, less alone in the world, less antagonism with their family. And so I remember that shift kind of gradually happening for me a few years ago as I was reading the work of Jonathan Haidt and Peter Bogosian and Mm -hmm. things like this. And, um, and getting mixed responses from my patients when I gradually pushed mm-hmm. back a little bit. But mm-hmm. I but I found sometimes if I was if I was gentle and suave enough with it that that these ideas were really helpful to people. And that's really mm-hmm. ideally where I'd like to be able to focus is helping people understand one another better. It doesn't mean that you always give the benefit of the doubt to everyone, especially mm-hmm. if that puts you in harm's way. There are predators out there and we need to learn in what situations we really should be vigilant. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, we tend to do better when we see the glasses half full and when we give others the benefit of the doubt until they mm-hmm. give us reason to really believe otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so sad that, you know, a, a profession that was originally designed to help families heal, help, not, not just individuals heal, but families heal, help yeah. people come together Mm-hmm. Um, because we know relationships are such a big part of what makes for for our well-being, right? Mm-hmm. That a profession that was designed to do that is now being kind of weaponized mm-hmm. to driving a deeper wedge between, you know, especially 20 and 30-somethings on the West Coast of the U.S., like where I am, right? Mm-hmm. And their, their relatives in a different part of the country who vote differently, mm-hmm. right? Um And I don't know if you have regional differences like that in the UK, but I see a lot of wedges being driven by therapists sort of self-righteously colluding with their patients' worldviews rather than thinking, you know, maybe there's a human being on the other side that we're talking about who is not immoral, but differently moral. Mm. Yeah. And maybe the best outcome Maybe mm-hmm. the best outcome for my patient is if I set aside my own biases and work gently with my patient to help them recognize how perhaps their own biases are also getting in the way 
of unity, redemption, mm-hmm. forgiveness, yeah. trust. And yeah, that's where um, I want to say, like, I think Christian values, like, lately I've, I think some of the best values that religion has to offer are, like, redemption, mm-hmm. humility, grace, charity, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. I posted on Twitter some uh, that I was very interested in what was happening in, uh, I don't know if you saw the news about um, this, like, two-week-long religious ceremony at a college in a small town in Kentucky in the United States. Did you mm-hmm. hear about that? Yeah. It's yeah. Asbury, Kentucky, small Christian college um, where they have their, you know, congregation several nights a week. And one night they all started praying and singing and doing their their ceremony. And the way that they described it was that the Holy Spirit came and and this did not stop for two weeks straight. And people came from all over the country and including some other countries, people were coming from as far as Brazil mm-hmm. to be part of this, this huge congregation of people just singing, worshiping, praying. Um, and I, I saw videos of this and I thought it was so beautiful. And I say this as somebody who I, I don't call myself a Christian. I've I've never read. I've tried to read the Bible like a verse here or there, and I'm like, oh, I can't read this way. It's like a foreign language, you know. <laughs> and there's a lot about Christianity that does not make sense to me. But what I saw was I saw spiritually healthy young people because I saw grace, surrender, humility, charity, neighborliness, mm-hmm. uh, purity, wholeness, wholesomeness. I saw people lifting their voices in unison. And I don't even have to speak English or understand that there is such a thing as Christianity to see that and see that I'm seeing a something that is spiritually healthy, that is beautiful, and that that represents a part of the human soul that has to express itself somehow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. I mean, there's lots of points there. I think I think I mean I read Jonathan Haidt's um I don't know which book you're referring to, but I read The Righteous Mind. I don't know that if you read that one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that really that that was a really significant book for me. I think he really highlights so well how people, it's not that the other side are immoral. It's just that they have different values, that they, that they have different emphasis on different values. Um, and both, both, most people want to improve the world or they care about certain things. You know, most people want some kind of change or they want, they want, you know, they have something that they care about, but it's just that, Maybe some people focus on certain values more than others. So certain people will value empathy and compassion a lot more and other people will um, value things like duty or responsibility. And then those two groups end up arguing, saying that you don't care about responsibility and the other one will say, well, you don't care about compassion. And actually they both care about both of them, but they're they're sort of more aligned with one than the other. But I think definitely with, with Christianity, I mean... I mean, it's very different in the states than it is here because it's you know obviously the states are a lot more it's a lot more religious than than the UK is, but it helps me a lot, you know, having that sort of foundational structure. It, I found it it gives me a kind of a grounding and it's something that I can always return to. It's kind of like when I feel a bit lost, I can sort of go back to that that thing, and it sort of centres me. And yeah, I mean, it's something that a lot of there can be a lot of positive in religion and I think that there does seem to be in psychotherapy and psychiatry a kind of snobbery about religion that it's kind of um, an illusion or a fantasy or it's kind of people deluding themselves or it's kind of um, 
you're you're sort of intellectually more sophisticated if you're not religious but then what we see is those types of people often develop their own kinds of religions um which is what we're seeing with kind of ideology that they they develop their own kind of rituals and their own beliefs and end up acting in very religious ways far more religious than a lot of people who are um typically religious so uh yeah, I mean that's that's kind of my that's kind of my thinking that I see a lot of people behaving in religious ways, even though they claim not to be religious. Um, and I think it is a very deep instinct in all of us, just the spiritual uh, kind of spirituality, I guess. And it doesn't have to be an organised religion; it can just be a sense of um, awe, or a sense of creativity, or imagination, or some kind of connection to something bigger, um, and I think that that is lacking in a lot of people's lives at the moment. That that's kind of been ridiculed, or um, it, it's not seen as important, or it's not valued. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Amy, and I. I think there's a danger in the the sort of hubristic assumption that that you can just do without religion and and that there won't be any consequences to it Mm -hmm. i i think that the spiritual drive is innate as well and i think we have plenty of evidence for this Mm -hmm. and so you know i was talking with a friend of mine who um he's he's pretty kooky he's pretty out there but we are you know we're very aligned (laughs) because i'm pretty kooky i'm pretty out there and he's he's the like one of the only people i can talk to about god where I feel mm-hmm. like when I say God, he knows what I mean and vice versa. And and he said he wants to bring God back to life. He said, you know, we've had 150 years since Nietzsche just declared God is dead. And it turns out we can't do without God. We need to bring God back to life. Um, and it, and I, I get what he means when he says that because um, without, yeah, without some sort of healthy expression of that drive, which, like I said, you know, the qualities that I really – see as spiritually healthy are like humility, charity, surrender, uh, Mm -hmm. grandeur, awe, wonder, glory, um, faith, you know, these uh, redemption Mm -hmm. um, and reckoning like these, you know, without some healthy way to channel those needs, we end up with, um, with the opposite of those qualities, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of humility, we end up with arrogance and narcissism instead of surrender. Um, we end up with control instead of trust or faith. We end up with paranoia. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of what I see happening here. And it has a religious fervor to it. Mm. Um, you know, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think, no, I think, I mean, it's very humbling to, I mean, you, I think the central concept of religion is that there is, if you believe in God, then you, that also means that you're not God. <laughs> so you're humbled by it. That there is this thing that you, this unknown thing that, that's so much bigger than you and you can't possibly know everything or, or you, you can't be the perfect person because you're just a human, you're not God. Um, and I think what we're seeing now happening is a lot of people, especially in the, the, the kind of transgender movement, it is a kind of a desire to play at being God, to, to kind of 
that you are the creator that that you that you know everything that you're all knowing that you have the one truth um and it comes back to that certainty and doubt uh kind of uh, conundrum it's that you end up feeling like um it i think a religious belief it fends off grandiosity it, it fends off kind of uh kind of feelings of um you know kind of manic defenses of uh, of i i know everything i've got the i've i've you know you see it in in people who are very woke that they they think that they've they've worked out the world they've worked they understand how the world works they understand all the structures and and they understand what group is the bad group and what group is the good group and who's who's right and who's wrong and they understand everything completely and um, if only every, only everybody else understood it the way that they understood it, then we'd live in a perfect world. Um, and what most religions, not just Christianity, but most religions teach is that um, there is no perfect world. There isn't, you know, we're all flawed, um, but we can all be forgiven, but we're not perfect. And I think that's central. That's a central idea of, of psychotherapy as well, that you're... Um, you know, you 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 aim you aim to have a sort of a good enough upbringing, or to just be good enough and be content with that. And we often see patients who want to be perfect, want you know, mm-hmm. that that want a perfect life, and want the world to be perfect, and um, they become very kind of puritanical in that pursuit. Um, so that's why that you know, to me, there's a lot of you know religion and some of the aims of psychotherapy do overlap for me. I know some people would think they're polar opposites, but for me it is a pursuit of kind of truth um, and being kind of secure. And like you said, in knowing how to react to certain things and knowing what environment you're in and knowing, kind of having that kind of self-awareness. And I think, um, yeah, so definitely the, the kind of facing reality and facing truth and knowing Knowing your place in the world, I think that's something that Christianity helps me with, but it's also some of the ideas of psychotherapy help me with that. And there is a bit of an overlap, I think. Um, I really appreciate what you said there. And you talk about how um, having a religion fends off grandiosity. And and the way I think of it is, is that the way it does that is by redirecting it to redirecting the individual's capacity for uh, delusions of grandeur into a healthy outlet, which is sort of the the, priv- the privilege of bathing in the glory of God, that there is grandeur, there is grandiosity, mm-hmm. there is glory. It's just not mine, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the sunshine and I get to bathe in it, right? That's yeah. my role. I'm not the sun, I'm the sun bather. Yes. And isn't that, isn't that a lovely feeling? And you talk about this playing God and I think of it similarly like, yes, it's definitely playing God, I mean, and I think even the most atheist gender critic would agree with this on with this on that, that it's playing God to rearrange the body and think that you can override nature. And mm-hmm. I also see it as like a rejection of God, God's gifts, a rejection of the gift of the body that you have, the life that you have, the family that you have. I was also thinking about how one of the things that I enjoy or appreciate about people who I see as like healthy Christians, because I think, mm-hmm. you know, anyone can be unhealthy in their relationship to anything, is that there is this understanding that like we're all children of God and that makes us brothers and sisters. 
and mm. we all have a sinful nature, but we can all, like you said, be forgiven. And so mm. there's this, you know, the teaching of Jesus of, you know, the the log in your own eye, right? Mm. And um, I enjoy that feeling because although I do have a big personality and I have some boldness and yes, I will puff up from time to time if mm. I'm threatened, Um and yes, there are things I'm proud of and there are good qualities I have that I'm not afraid to name. But I think that sometimes that bit of ego that comes across to some people gets read uncharitably as like me acting like I'm a perfect role model. And I've never claimed to be that. Mm. I've never claimed to be that. All I think is that like with what I have, I'm going to do the most that I can with it. Yeah. Um, and And I think that Within Christianity, as I see it, in the healthy expressions of Christianity, I see room for that. I see that, like, we can all be the best versions of ourselves and mm-hmm. still be children of God and still have sin in our nature. And I think people kind of freak out in reaction to sin, especially where it's gotten, you know, where the issue, the contentious issue comes up of, like, is Christianity anti-gay? Is is it is it considered a sin to be gay, which depends on which Christian you ask, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, even if you take away the that very contentious issue, I know many people who have run away from Christianity or felt scarred by Christianity have this relationship with the concept of sin, where it's like, it's considered such a horribly shame-based concept. But I've been rethinking it lately, because if I think about what I know about, like, the general, like, the seven deadly sins, right? Like, we all have that that sort of entropic nature in us that will pull us into sloth and gluttony and avarice and, mm-hmm. you know, covetousness and things like this. Right. And to me, when I think of, when I think of sin in this light, that yes, we all have this sort of lower nature that will get the best of us if we don't feed mm-hmm. into our higher nature, if we don't cultivate it, that just seems kind of obvious. It, and it doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it has to be approached with shame or abuse Mm -hmm. or anything like that it just seems like it's a reckoning with what our nature is yeah I think I mean people get very caught up in kind of what they see as like the rules of religion or Christianity and I don't I've never thought of it like that I think of it much more as a kind of an ideal or a kind of approximation of this is kind of roughly what you should aim for like these are the but don't don't worry if you fall short because you will fall short so but if you want but if you get lost and you don't know what to aim for come back to the ideal come back to the certain things that we've said you should probably try and do this and this and this um and if you can do one of them and you can do one of them well then that's great you're that that's good and if you fall short of the others that's okay and you just you just keep you just keep trying to understand and develop and better yourself and hopefully those other things might fall into place or some of them won't or some of them will and and you're you know it, it's a very it's a very personal I think it's quite a private thing actually or often um religious belief it's quite it's quite difficult to explain and it's quite difficult to um you know articulate sometimes but it it's it, it doesn't need to be something that's judgmental and it certainly doesn't mean you're judging others. It's more of a kind of a sense of just a kind of, this is what I'm, I want for me or what I'm trying to aim for for me. And 
it it's um i i think we're in time you know at the moment i think things feel very judgmental people are being judged all the time and i think one thing because i know you've experienced that it's negative you know um criticism for talking about certain things and i have as well and i think i one thing that's helped me to manage that is that i feel actually if you have an idea of god you're in a relationship with god that's the that's that's all that kind of matters so other people's judgments are just it, it just falls away because it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter it's it's insignificant really um so yeah it it, it does end up becoming a kind of thing in people's minds of Christians are judgmental or Christianity is judgmental but I don't experience it like that at all I I experienced it the opposite I found it quite freeing I found it like um you know I'm always I'm always accepted I'm always loved um and if I fall short it's okay that that to me feels very accepting rather than judgmental um yeah well I think we need you know part of that spiritual drive is we need that glory because because there is grandeur there is awe and wonder mm-hmm. and we need someone or something to look up to mm-hmm. and what i see happening is that when people don't have a healthy outlet for that religious instinct mm-hmm. that's when we're most vulnerable to witch hunts because mm-hmm. there's a sense that human beings have to be perfect that human beings mm-hmm. have to fulfill the glory of god and we will you know find someone to put on a pedestal and project our longing for divine perfection onto that person or that group of people. And then when they inevitably fall short, falling off the pedestal, that's when the witch hunt comes in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, uh, you know, idea of not worshipping false idols. You know, that's a kind of a Christian, a tenet of Christianity that, you know, if you don't worship God, you'll end up worshipping something else. Or if you don't believe in God, you'll end up believing in something else. So you know, just be mindful that that might not necessarily be better. The thing that you end up worshiping or believing in, it might be, right. yeah, it might be I worse. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. I, I thought I had this thought of, I don't know if this is an actual thing that anybody has come up with before, probably because it seems pretty obvious it rhymes, but like I came up with this idea of hashtag blessed, not oppressed as like a, <laughs> a remedy for Gen Z, because I do think that there's sort of this, the process of coming to Jesus would be a really healthy thing for a lot of people right now. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that Christianity is perfect, but it doesn't have to be. You know, I think mm-hmm. a religion is only as perfect as the human beings who are running it. But that's the whole point is that you're saying, you know, it's like that saying, don't look at my finger, look at the moon. I'm pointing to something, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just trying to say that there is perfection and Mm -hmm. here's a way that we can talk about it. And, you know, what I saw when I watched these videos of the Asbury revival, or they called it the outpouring um, of faith was like, I saw young people from all walks of life. They had, you know, all skin colors, all body types, Um, probably from different socioeconomic backgrounds. This is Kentucky. It's not a wealthy part of the country. They were all dressed very modestly. Um, They didn't look wealthy, right? But but they were pouring their hearts out in gratitude and praise and worship. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this, the alternative to that with Gen Z right now, the the TikTok trends of the mental illness fetishization Mm -hmm. is like, it's all this emphasis on there's no God. I am God. I'm special. 
Mm. And, and my specialness comes through my oppression, through my disability, through how my life is hard. And there's mm. claiming an identity in that. And I thought like this, this outpouring that I saw is the inversion of that, the healthy mm. transformation of that to, I don't have to claim an identity in any type of hardship. That's really heavy. That's really weighing my soul down. Yeah. And stopping me from manifesting the glory of God that is within me and stopping me from being healthy and stopping me from being happy and whole and loved mm -hmm. and all the things that I'm crying out for. And what if I were to just accept that whatever I have, I am blessed, right? Mm -hmm. Even if I, even if there's a part of me that's struggling to accept the sex of my body or mm -hmm. the color of my skin or the uh, socioeconomic class I was born into or whatever, like I can be blessed and when I think when we step into that mentality of gratitude for what we yeah. do have, then doors open because that's a magnetic attitude, right? Mm -hmm. And it shows us that if God gives you gifts, you will say thank you. Well, when you give someone a gift and, and they're grateful for it, you're more likely to want to give to them again yeah. than when you give someone a gift and they throw it back at you and say this isn't good enough. Yeah, I was going to use that word gratitude. I think that's something a lot of people need at the moment because it, it's just uh... – very short supply just you know being grateful for the things you do have um I think I mean it's I've really struggled with obviously what's happened to me in terms of this ideology being pushed onto me and what I found is they really don't seem to understand that there could be a different way of looking at things so I don't see people as oppressed or oppressor when I see someone who's got a different sex to me or a different skin tone to me I think that's exactly how they're supposed to be. That's how they were made. God wanted there to be difference in the world and everyone's exactly how they should be. And we don't know why. We don't, you know, I can't claim to know why someone is the way they are, but it's a unique expression of God's creation, every one of us. So this idea that some, some expressions of creation would be bad or that I'd have to view them in a certain way, that just doesn't, work for me and they they don't seem to be able to understand that there is a very different way of viewing the world they haven't explored yet but it's um yeah it, it when you, it, it's very freeing to walk through the world and just see everyone as like a unique kind of uh you know something kind of uniquely um a unique expression of something and you don't know what that is and they're an individual and you don't know why you don't know why you're walking past them you don't know why you might encounter them you don't know what they could have to offer you and it means like every interaction is kind of magical it's like this person knows things that I don't know they've had experiences that I don't have um they've got a brain that works in a way that's different to mine like wow every then you can gain something from every interaction whereas this current narrative of like when you're interacting with someone, you've got to be overly aware of not oppressing someone or not saying the wrong thing or how they're oppressing you or, or you know, who's got, who's, who's got the privilege or who hasn't. It's just, it's just horrible. It just feels, to me, it just feels in my gut, it feels wrong. Like I feel like, no, that's not how we're supposed to see each other. That's not how we're supposed to move in this world. Like that's, it, it, it just... I can feel it. It's a physical feeling of, no, that, that's not right. <laughs> I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. 
If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. This, this um, witch hunting that you've been subjected to, this, this paranoid way of thinking that's like mm. seeking out evil mm. where even where it doesn't exist, right? Mm. That, that you, Amy, are unsafe to be around. You're unsafe to attend a meeting with or to see patients. I mean, I feel, you know, anger knowing that you were treated that way by people who themselves are unsafe to see many, you know, we could turn that around on them. They're unsafe to see Christians. They're unsafe to see all kinds of people, right? But um, you think it's, you know, again, part of this kind of religious instinct that people are trying to understand the nature of good and evil Mm. and and that there's a seeking out of evil because... They don't understand how evil truly works. I mean, I've I've had some spiritual insights just in my own non-denominational way about the nature of evil, if you know, if we conceive it as Satan or the devil or evil or, you know, sin or whatever you, anybody's particular framework might be for that. Mm-hmm. But like one thing I realized is that the devil's very tricky. Like the devil. If, if there is a devil, the devil doesn't care what your morals are. He's mm. happy to use them against you because mm-hmm. he has no morality, right? If we, if we are to personify evil as a, as a character that I'm calling the devil here, he has no intrinsic morality. And so if your morals prioritize justice, he's mm. happy to trick you and lead yeah. you into doing his bidding Mm-hmm. under the name of justice. He's mm-hmm. not going to say, oh, no, that's wrong. I shouldn't deceive, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. it seems to me very obvious that all these people coming from this very emotionally reactive place and with the certainty that they're right are ripe for exploitation by evil. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's that, maybe it's that, that that evil has crept into their hearts and they're trying to understand it and they're afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And and so in an effort to trying to understand mm-hmm. the nature of evil, because we all have some perhaps spiritual duty for ourselves to understand the mm-hmm. nature of good and evil, that, that that's causing this, this witch hunt, this paranoid mentality that's then looking to, to root out evil where it doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if these people could be helped, not that they want my help or your help, but in an ideal world, would there be a way to help reach them and, and help, you know, redirect that instinct to like, I, I see that you're trying to understand where evil mm. truly resides and how it operates. Let's take a closer look at this. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's how I conceive of, you want to call it the devil or sin as, as deception and lies and, and, and a turning away from the truth, which we all do to an extent. There's all you know, it's all painful realities that you just think to yourself, I don't I can't face I can't face that today. I can't I can't look at that. I know I should shouldn't be doing that. Or I know I sh- you know I know it could be better, but I I just I'm just gonna or even unconsciously we just cut off certain things that just feel too difficult. Um so we we all we all deceive ourselves to an extent. Um 
But I think what's happening with this this kind of thing that we're going through culturally is that there really is a desire to get rid of all the bad and to for it to be outside of you, that the evil exists in the world, in other people, not in me at all. You know, it's and, and then people like me and James S's and other people that get scapegoated and bullied, they end up being the the bad object. It's all in that person. And it's not in me, it's in them or it's in this particular group, it's it's Christians, or it's the West, or it's or 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 it's black people, or it's gay people, or slightly, you know, it can go both ways. It, it ends up being put into a, a group. Whereas of course, I would see the the purpose of a really good psychotherapy is to understand that, you know, the good and the bad exists in all of us. And and if you really want to change the world, the first thing to do is to to do work in understanding the the evil inside you, you know. I know it sounds a bit cringy, but but it is to sort of look inward and know that all the terrible things that have done by people that you may hate, you also could be like them. You know, you're not too different from them. You could end up doing terrible things. And, you know, notice that about yourself. Notice when you're getting angry or you're othering someone or you're, you know, and sort of think, oh, you know, that's, you know, that's in me, that instinct. Um, that's the real shadow a, work right there. <laughs> real shadow deep work. integration. Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of what's happening is people don't want to do that. They they don't want to admit that they, that the darkness is kind of in them It's and they want to it's just, it is easier. It's, you know, and I can understand it. It's easier to just think that all the problems of the world, all the reason I feel pain, it's all because of that person or that group. We just got rid of them, all the pain would go away. And that's kind of, you know, simple, isn't it? It makes it like, ah, there you go. Now I understand it. But it's not that simple. We're, we're complicated um it, what people are doing with their bodies with the trans stuff it's all in my breasts or it's all in my yeah. you know this body part or that body part we yeah. escape people scapegoating our, their own bodies and it's just such a dangerous assumption to think that eradicating anything mm-hmm. whether it's eradicating a body part or eradicating a group of people yeah. or eradicating a certain social structure that we rely on for society to function that eradicating any one thing is going to eradicate evil from humanity yeah. is such a dangerous assumption. Yeah, uh, I agree. Is, I'm having such a great time talking to you, Amy. I didn't know we oh, were going to go here. So profound. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. to look up, I was actually hoping that with our remaining time, you could help me respond to a listener email. Okay. Yeah. This is from uh, someone named Joel. Mm-hmm. And he emailed me February 20th. Our episode is probably coming out March 27th. So he'll have to wait a little bit, but it's better than nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. He said, hi, I thought I should get in touch with you. I've become a regular listener of your podcast over the last few months. I wanted to become a therapist, but then I started seeing the words, quote unquote, social justice everywhere on the local program's websites. Then I found out about Leslie Elliott and what she went through. I wasn't Mm -hmm. surprised, honestly. I'm wondering if I should keep pursuing a career in psychotherapy. I get a yeah. lot of emails like this. So do I. <laughs> I've had a few people reach out to me who are 
currently training and thinking they should quit or they're not sure about going into training or they're already qualified but they've got some kind of diversity and equality training that they have to attend and they're like should I say something or not um it's it's a really difficult question I I don't know that I can give an answer I mean, I'd, I'd be interested how you would answer that I think I mean it must be that there must be different um institutions that I mean I guess I would say shop around and make sure you you know look at there's different modalities and different and different institutions where where this will be you know lesser or greater um but it's yeah it's a conundrum I don't know it it's um I've had a few I've had as I said I've had lots of people ask me and I I don't know what the answer is I guess I would say I'd love to say yeah go for it and speak your mind but you know what's happened to me is it's really hard it's a really horrible thing to go through so I mean you you may if you really want it you may have to do some kind of training but just be careful what you say and I think that's I feel that's a terrible really unsatisfying answer so I don't want to have to say to people you know don't say things don't speak the truth or don't stand up to think for things you believe in but in some in some cases if you if you really want you know you just need to get the qualification and then once you've got it then you can be your own person um yeah I don't know I'd be curious to see what you what you think I think things are really unstable right now Mm. and it's hard to predict what direction things will change in the next five to ten years because I mean here in the U.S. it's like I can't even keep up with the news even though gender is my main issue that I focus Mm. on Mm. I still can't even keep up with the news of how quickly laws are being written and voted on in different states with regard to moving the needle one way or the other way with Mm -hmm. regard to gender. You got like states like Oregon and – well, California and then Oregon shortly following trying to become – oh, and Vermont trying to become quote-unquote sanctuary states, basically encouraging vulnerable youth from other states to run away and become part of the foster care system and be at risk of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. because they want hormones, right? So you have states like that, and then you have conservative states banning child mutilation. So it's Mm -hmm. pushing in both directions, and Mm -hmm. it's all going to the Supreme Court. And I think now is a really hard time to to have to make a decision either way about Mm -hmm. what to do with your career. And one part of me wants to say to Joel and everyone who emails both of us like that, like, can you do something else for five years? Like, can you, I don't know, work in a flower (laughs) shop or like, you know, can you stay out of trouble and like, meanwhile, enrich your brain, you know, read a lot or listen to a lot of podcasts and Mm. have good conversations and maybe gain some experience doing something therapy adjacent, but where you don't have to go through all that training and spend all that money. Um, And just kind of wait to see how the world shifts. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way to approach it would be, like you said, shop around. And I would say um, one thing I, I say to a lot of people is to try not to get defensive about your beliefs, to try mm-hmm. to – and that starts with yeah. you. It starts with how you're mm-hmm. feeling. And I think you do a really good jo- job of this, Amy, and I it shows in your energy, and I think your faith probably helps you with it, that like 
carrying yourself without feeling, without taking on the weight of the projection of evil that people will throw at you. Because, you know, people would have you believe that you are a horrible, sinful, racist, transphobic Mm -hmm. bigot, right? And you're not owning that because you know who you are and you, you know what your faith does for you, right? And I would say to anyone, regardless of their faith, that it's not going to help you to take on those projections and to Mm -hmm. preemptively feel defensive in your own body going into it. So I would say like, for example, if you care about detransitioners, there is nothing corrupt about caring about detransitioners. You are caring Mm -hmm. about a vulnerable group of people who needs help. And I think you can take that into your interviews with grad schools and say, hey, I really care about what's happening with detransitioners right now. What's your program stance on that? You know, Mm -hmm. and see what kind of reaction you get. I think that's Mm -hmm. one way to approach it. Um, yeah I think very as much as they're interviewing you you know you're interviewing them and actually you want to get a sense of what they think and how they respond to you and they might not be the right fit for you if if you're gonna you know you don't want to pay all that money to be taught things that you don't agree with and that aren't helpful you you know and and you end up hating it it's it's not it's not worth it so you've got to um yeah, you've got to try and be savvy, I guess. I'm just looking at one more email thinking if there's anything different about this one. Let me just read this one out loud. And I don't know if I have this person's permission, so I'm not going to use their name. And I'm not going to read everything in the email, but it says, I'm one of the detransitioners that you reached out to regarding your book. I'm strongly considering making a career change. I've eaten up a lot of literature over the past nine months since I desisted. It's making me take psychology into consideration. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share any advice or insight to consider as I explore options. While pushing back on the gender issue is certainly something I'm willing to do, I'm not sure I want it to be my main focus. I have a few other inklings of ideas I'd like to pursue but need to flesh them out a bit more. I'd probably lean towards clinical rather than research at this stage. At this stage of life, having already formed a strong foundation for my worldview, yet trying to remain open-minded, what sorts of things should I be looking for if I want to pursue an education and eventually work in the field? Does an institution and what it teaches carry as much weight for me as someone likely to be quite a bit less impressionable than someone in their early 20s? Oh, I get that the person is saying they're less impressionable, so should they worry as much? Put another way, should I be more concerned with simply finding somewhere to obtain necessary qualifications to begin work, or is the institution itself's worldview still a major concern? I mean, this this email contains quite a bit of nuance in the questions. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to say to that that to this to this person, you've already identified some of your strengths, right? That you're a little bit more grounded, you're in your 30s, mm-hmm. and you're thinking maybe I can just hold myself at a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, do, can I just jump through the hoops? And I would say to that, like, find out exactly what hoops you're going to need to jump through. Like, mm-hmm. you know, with Leslie Elliott, she had to take this civility pledge, which, like, civility sounds good, but again, it's Orwellian. <laughs> so, like, what kind of commitment is this institution going to ask you to make? How do you know that whatever commitments they tell you you have to make at the beginning aren't going to change mm-hmm. a few years in? Um, and then you also need to ask questions about the process of, um, accruing your internship hours and working with an advisor, working with a supervisor and um, see if you can find some protections for yourself. If you're considering going to a school that's showing signs of wokeness, I mean, the other thing is, and I realize this isn't a fit for most, for a lot of people, but going mm-hmm. to like a Christian counseling program might be the one place that <laughs> you're like protected <laughs> from this <laughs> ideology. Yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Amy? I guess just thinking of this person. I mean, they said that they detransitioned only nine months ago. Is that right? So yeah. I'd be, I'd be just be saying to that person, take your time because it sounds as though you've been through some massive change, and that's huge. And so just be careful about sort of throwing yourself into the next thing. I, I think just, just give yourself time, and. Um, yeah, that's going to be difficult. I, I think definitely keeping some semblance of distance. Like, I mean, the person said that um, that they weren't necessarily going to look into gender. They were going to look into other, you know, other, other areas of psychology. I think that would be good. Like, just maybe you could come back to it at some stage, but maybe it's it feels very close at the moment. Like, it feels it'd be hard for it not to affect you. So I think that that sounds good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's that's a, that's a very niche to be a detransitioner going into psychology. That's like a that's going to be like a very unique experience for this person, and would raise all sorts of things. Yeah, that's and I would want to know. I mean, I don't know this person well enough to see like how they're coping and how severe their trauma mm-hmm. is. But I know like some detransitioners who have um, a lot of trauma. Mm. from issues related to transition like any exposure to what are your pronouns or any of that stuff like sends them flying into a rage understandably like they're having a major ptsd response because they can't get away from things that remind them of the worst thing they've ever been through which they still live with every day so i would say like as a detransitioner not knowing how far you went or where you're at in your healing process to be aware that like as much as you're expressing confidence that like you're in your thirties, you're a little bit more grounded. You can maybe just kind of jump through some hoops, like check in with yourself about how it feels in your body, what kind of visceral reaction you get when you have to be around the virtue signaling around the gender Mm -hmm. stuff, because, you know, unless you go to a very special school or a very like conservative Christian school, you're likely going to continue being exposed to that, to those triggers in grad school. And, and would you have anyone on your side? Um, would be something I, I would want to know if I were in your position. So. Thanks, Amy. I, I I get so many emails that I can't respond to. And so every now and then I try to um, to use one of my conversations, especially if it's an appropriate guest like you. So I really appreciate you going over these emails with me. Um, <laughs> but we should wrap up. So I know you said at the beginning where people can find you, but let's uh, revisit that. Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Stirred up to woke, um, and I'm also uh, raising money for my legal case. So that's GoFundMe forward slash Stand Up to Woke. And if you just Google Amy Gallagher Tavistock, you'll probably find me. Some you'll find me on YouTube. So yeah. And you've done a few other interviews. So if anyone wants to hear the full story, um, yeah. those, those are excellent conversations as well. Um, well, Amy, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure having you. It's been lovely. Yeah, it's been nice to talk about things other than my whole legal case so I've really really enjoyed it (laughs) yeah thank you I hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn LMFT this podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at different mix special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song half awake at sometherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. 
You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.